Woohoo! We are done. It uh, it seems with our first season of uh, Pravaha podcast, and we are already here for the second season. How does that make you feel, Pratik? Well, I think we should have done it sooner, but yes, it's exciting nevertheless. Yeah. So we are as that as as we are recording, we are on the first ninth of January two thousand twenty-two. So first, I mean. Uh, it's been over a week but happy new year pratik happy new year to you too and a very very happy new year to all our listeners yeah i mean uh, they might all, i mean for all we know this could be released in march or something but okay no it doesn't matter it's we we, we need to we, you know we need to show people where our hearts lie <laughs> so okay uh, what are your plans for this year i mean i'm not asking you you know like this generic uh, film interview questions but Yes, because you're you're full. So you're always so pregnant with ideas. So what are your plans for this year? Well, I really hope I get to do more research and more study and something fructifies from all yeah. my aadha adhura works. That's what I that's what I say. I start writing essays, I start writing papers, and everything just lies halfway round. I really hope <laughs> I get my head around all of these and at least get to fruition one or two of them. Yes. Right. Right. And. Um, so what have you been occupied by lately ha uh, i've been working on a translation of a conversation that uh, ranganatha and ranganayaki have during the panguni utsavam at sri rangam and uh, um, i just before i entered this call i pressed the last control s for the word document and yeah. uh, i i need to add footnotes and all of that but yes that's yeah. been my latest you are not even you are not even shut the microsoft word document down in that case No, no, it's still there. It's still, it's still there. there. So it's 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 you can imagine how, how um, uh, like Pratik lives no space between his day. He's always working with something, something, something. His breaks are basically moving from one activity to another activity, not <laughs> not doing anything. That that's not there. Yeah. What And, are you uh, occupied with? Uh, okay, so um, I am. Uh, so one first, I I finished my bachelor's, so I'm doing my master's. Uh, in pune uh, in in sanskrit actually from deccan college because i realized that a lot of the sources that i'm interested in the history that i'm interested in is literary so i thought it's good to have probably a stronger base in the language and to learn as language many languages as possible because i've noticed that even historians who we really revere uh, who work on on so uh, work in areas that definitely require a strong language base sometimes to not Sometimes lack it. They are not uh-huh. as great as we would expect them to be. So, so that's definitely a major shortcoming I feel in the field of history. So I'm doing that. Uh, so, and I am, and uh, it's an excellent. But but actually, sadly, I as I'm speaking, India seems to be sliding into something like a third wave. So I am not on campus. I'm in the city of Bangalore, uh, and uh, from. but during my time i spent a month and a half over there in pune and during my time i i just encountered like this whole world of sanskrit philology on my campus itself of scholars personal lives of scholars uh, in their why are their library why are their, why are their personal collections so i am working on those personal collections to try to conceive them as an archive Uh, so that's I've been very major. fascinated by the things that you send me and you in the short snippets that you write. <coughs> yeah, yeah, I I am really excited about that as well. Besides that, I am also working on some kind of history of Andhra kind of a thing. 
based on biographies and travel writing uh, travel is something that 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 really really uh, fascinates me that, that really energizes me so much and i and, I, and even in my previous in our previous season i spoke I, I had there an were episode two on travels and jatakas yes and also one other uh, surveys the life of a surveyor which is also yeah. travel based right you can so that does those two anyways also, since we talk about just written written from travels i mean uh, that's another yeah. coincidence that's here yeah, i was going to say that what was what was the le- least latest uh, recent most recent travel to do with well my recent travel had to do with a lot of things right from the early i mean prehistoric bhimbetka to the gorgeous gupta temples and then to uh, khajuraho of the chandelas to the begums of bhopal and i think uh, i've covered i've covered what uh, around 15000 years of human history in that trip so yes <laughs> yeah or even more i think there's like mesolithic mesolithic i hear paintings also on bhimbetka walls which right. is probably even more probably yeah right. excellent i mean it's just amazing and um, um i just before pratik ended his i i was finishing mine too it was a very short trip it's a, it's like a, it's a pilgrimage through south southern karnataka southern maharashtra and parts one one two towns in north karnataka that's pandar kolhapur khidrapur pandharpur uh, spent night some spent some time in solapur as well and basava kalyana uh which which features importantly in one of in our pre one of actually both pandarpur and uh, basakalyana if you remember occur uh, in the same episode actually of our uh, previous season uh, right uh, that that's just amazing and actually also one I mean, shaiva and one vaishnava center both are yeah and they're so close to that actually i didn't realize that it's the same episode even that's that's great so we have an episode called vachanas varkaris and vachanas i think so just go check it out if you're interested in what we're talking about i think that was a pretty decent recap of our lives and i think we have that that's us at the moment in a nutshell um let's 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 dive into the present season of our podcast what can we expect pratik what do you think uh, after after having experienced the first season what did you learn well i think uh, uh, we covered a lot of ground in terms of uh, religion and in terms of uh, uh, in terms of literature and things like that and i think of course religion and literature are not going to go anywhere away from us i think through them i think we should also start exploring the political and social scenarios uh, in the second season and i also one more thing is last time it was just the both of us speaking and i think this time it's going to be a lot of guests who are going to be around and speak to us on a variety of things where we also would be listening and learning along with our along with our uh, as subscribers so yes i'm excited for that yeah uh, yeah i have similar uh, views as well and, and firstly i think I, mean, i need to thank all those people who listened to our uh, earlier seasons uh, earlier season and earlier episodes it never i mean i if you if if you are listening to this episode please i mean your my just imagine that i am speaking to you directly and thanking you uh and based on what people have commented i we think we we decided that we need to really think about other topics as well uh so we're trying to do more of a uh, yeah a, a little more political history definitely and i think social history we we did speak about earlier as well but probably even a, a, some more you know and and also try to try to um, make references to our travels probably that's one thing you could probably do in this mm-hmm. uh, in this season i think and uh, what else 
uh, do you have anything else to say before we start this episode i think we should start yep all right ha huh. so pratik what are we talking about today so it's a very interesting topic uh, uh, because we call it forgotten cities and uh, being history freaks and travel or files or how you call it uh, we wanderlust wanderlusts yes so uh, when we visit many historical places we find that we read a lot and then go there and then we we are like oh my god is this that glorious place that we read about in history that was so you know vibrant before a thousand years but then today it's just this village and i think <clears throat> recently i mean to add to this big list of forgotten cities that we have in india uh, recently in my travel for example in uh, mp and up i ventured into this village called chandpur where i just was you know it was like being a piyush and i were traveling a friend of mine and we were like uh, you know uh, like as if uh, uh, we were john marshall or lord cunningham you know uh, finding literally discovering temples of course they documented before what i'm just saying uh, you know going into forests and then just seeing temples just rise up in front of our eyes so it's like that so uh, and then you see this this cluster of 10 temples glorious gorgeous temples built by the chandelas so but then today it's just a village which has no pakka roads no water no electricity uh, very slippery roads in which i happen to even fall so you know things like that so it's it's this is something that that keeps occurring to us i mean is this that town that we read about and i think that's that's fascinating and that's the topic that we're taking today and we're going to explore two <clears throat> such cities one is khuldabad uh, and the other is pareyare and i think the the contrast yet the similarities that these two cities are going to i mean the conversation is going to bring about i think that's very interesting because one pareyare is something from the pallava period right from the 7th 8th century not 7th uh, yeah 7th century uh, up till today we're going to trace its chronology but <clears throat> up to the peak you know uh, chola period uh, when the pandyas recapture it right around 13th century so till that is going to be the glorious time of pareyare and it's going to be a center for jain and shaiva and vaishnava traditions uh, which are going to compete with each other which we're going to see so there is this you know uh, very very jain shaiva vaishnava and <clears throat> 7th to 13th century period town that we're going to talk about city back then town in the medieval times perhaps a village now right and then you are going to talk about khuldabad about which if you have to give an introduction like how i did what would you say raven sure so khuldabad uh, it's primarily a to- tomb complex somewhat similar to pareyare in that case but it's situated in uh, let's say north central maharashtra probably i could say i would, I would say that and uh, and and the themes that we can really learn about in uh, from kuldabad is on the one hand very extensive religious history different religious cults uh, primarily in islam in india and the other is political history very very clear sort of unbroken political history right in the 14th century almost uh, or 13th really uh, century almost in of deccan and what's interesting is how inseparable these two are right you cannot like it's i mean as i it's not even forced it's not even forced narrative it's like as i'm speaking about religion i have to speak about politics as i'm speaking about politics i need to speak about religion and it's it's this sort of 
conflict and reconciliation story of politics and religion that really really comes to life explodes with full energy in kuldabad so i think that's what you can expect from my uh, from what i bring to the table i think religion and politics do go in hand hand in hand in any narrative that that we take and i think parayarai also is going to bring about that flavor again so yeah. i mean yeah so so to say right from 7th to 13th in uh, in southern tamil nadu uh, is going to be parayarai right from 13th um, uh, Till, is going yeah, to be 19th yeah, almost century 19th is going to be, be kuldabad uh, yes. from maharashtra so i think we are providing a disjunct continuum of two cities uh, that way you know uh, yeah. if i can call it that yeah. Yeah. so yes so uh, so uh, let me start perhaps you know of, of yeah. kind of actually how, you know how... what you you you, you, should, you should do this i mean you could just could you just um, uh, tell us like give, give us give us the kind of background facts that are required to understand parayare like very briefly yeah sure so uh, none of us is lost none of us is lost you know yeah yeah um okay Uh, so before i do that you know i would i would just start i mean i'm coming to that but just before i do that i'm going to start by saying why am i you know how did how did parayare kind of come to my notice or something like that how how i discovered my parayare right so to say that uh, <clears throat> when i was traveling in uh, kumbakonam long back i think 7 years ago yes so when i was traveling there i wanted to visit all the temples around look at all the historical sites and all of that and of course parayare <clears throat> i haven't read much back then i wasn't a well read person back then i was just you know <clears throat> prima facie readings and uh, okay parayare is a historical town there are temples there there are monuments there which i want to see right let's go but just that right so when i when i'm traveling in the car to parayare is when i notice these uh, names of these villages you know one board that reads chodan maligai which literally means the palace of the cholas well there is just no palace there there is nothing there it's it's a very 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 small village right and then there is an the next village is maligai made uh, it's just the hillock of the palace right that's that's what it literally translates to and then when we go around this this village of parayare um, i i just stopped the car and took photos of the name boards you know uh, one said pudu padai ur padai is literally battalion The, the 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 village of new battalion right arya padayur the village of the battalion of the aryas and pambap padayur bhambam perhaps the noise or something like that you know padayur again the town of battalions manap padayur again padayur so this town of battalions town of battalions or army towns all around this place called chodan maligai palace of cholas i'm like what is this i mean these these names are there in 21st century right and uh, what do these things even mean i mean to have these villages retained their names from 1000 years ago and that was that's my you know uh, direct perception of the history of parayare right so that's how i i got and then i started reading more into it and but of course with this information in mind when i went and visited those temples and the monuments that are there this is unremarkable i must say well considering if if we don't read them they will be just unremarkable because they're very they one they're small they're ruined ruins and things like that but then once we read all of this and then go and like my god is that this so that's kind of uh, the my discovery of parayare so having said that so to understand parayare uh, the basics uh, that would be needed is of course i will be walking 
through all of that um, in some detail uh, how much ever is possible so the first thing would be uh, would, would necessitate a little bit of understanding of the of the shaiva and vaishnava <laughs> traditions <laughs> sorry <coughs> sorry cut that out okay um <clears throat> yeah so basic understanding would be of the shaiva and vaishnava traditions and the tevaram and divya prabandham so that's where we'll start and then we will also be looking at <clears throat> the pallava uh, time period uh, mostly we will concentrate on nandivarman so uh, right from the 6th century uh, 7th century is where we'll start and then we'll come into uh, nandivarman who is um, you know around 8th century and then we will go on to a basic chronology of the cholas would help which of course i will walk you through so uh, and we will look at primary sources what we will be doing is looking at primary sources to kind of bring out the history of the city of palaya right uh, so a basic understanding of pallava and chola chronology and uh, and the tevaram and divya prabandham traditions would largely help but not an issue i'm going to walk you through all of that uh, so yes so what would be the basic uh, uh, necessary no, no, before that uh, could you just yeah. mention let's say the names of the kings or like roughly the years or something because we know like roughly what we're dealing with what years yeah so the pallavas as i said we will be starting with the 7th century where we get the poetries of uh, the tevaram and <clears throat> the divya prabandham from the 8th century and that's when nandivarman comes in because 8th century poetry mentions nandivarman so uh, mm-hmm. that's something that we will need and, the, and then we come to the nandivarman the third who is in the 9th century uh, another literature on him nandikalambagam mentions uh, palayare so we will be looking at that and then we we have right from vijayalaya uh, from the 10th century we have the chola samrajya that is coming in and parantaka <clears throat> from 907 and then sundara chola and then the famous raja raja who is there and um, up to uh, uh, 13th century wherein uh, pandyas are going to come and capture palayare and overthrow the cholas and uh, become rulers of the whole of chola land right so and then in 1310 uh, when khilji comes uh, and kafur comes south so that's that's kind of the period with which we are going to deal with uh, right. so since you that? asked me now I'm glad you left with the word Malik Kafur because as you can imagine that's really really important to what I'm going to talk about yeah. right uh, now uh, very 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 quickly I think where you know in in one minute let me just capture that Deccan history right we need to start with the dynasty the uh, Kal- Chalukyas of Kalyana which is around which starts which begins around uh, 10th let's say century CE and uh, it's a magnificent dynasty which is which is in fact known for its for being pitted against uh, the cholas for much of its history, its history but by the 12th century onwards like let's say the early decades of the 12th century around 1120s onwards some disintegration occurs in the chalukya uh, uh, kingdom uh, and at least three kingdoms break out from it like very very three critical kingdoms break out on on the one hand almost neatly carving out the linguistic spaces of today the sevna uh, dev uh, sevna yadavas of devagiri in the marathi speaking area and they become one of the first dynasties to patronize marathi by the way and south to the south of them uh, based in dwarasamudra or halebid of present 
you have the hoysalas and in the telugu speaking area uh, based in orugallu or varangal you have the kakatiyas these are the three major dynasties but uh, in the uh, in the 14th century right uh, you have first uh, the khaljis alauddin khalji primarily descending into the south and he first uh, you know he defeats the yadavas almost completely and uh, the hoysalas as well he 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 makes them pretty much his vassals and in fact so much so that uh, one of the kings uh, runs away to the tiruvannamalai and makes that his capital so halebid is completely destroyed it falls to the uh, to the raids of khalji and and varangal or kakatiya kingdom also becomes their vassal and finally later uh, mohammed bin tughlaq comes as a prince first and later as a king and substantially uh, de- defeats all these kingdoms and that's when it's it's gone the deccan is uh, captured by the delhi sultanate and khalj uh, you know uh, tughlaq is so sort of uh, uh, enamored by the deccan that he very infamously shifts his capital to uh, the city of uh, daulatabad right which is which is basically devagiri of the yadavas and uh, and of, of course he later shifts back to uh, delhi so then what's and, and soon from that the southern part of the delhi sultanate breaks away and it form becomes what's called the bahmani sultanate uh, in the uh, in the 14th century itself and at the same time that vijayanagara also forms this is around let's say 1340s uh, this this occurs and around uh, uh, towards the end of the 15th century and early part of 16th century this bahmani kingdom splits into five different kingdoms so as you can understand as you can see the city of khuldabad is situated right next to daulatabad and both of them are situated next to aurangabad which is a major town today which is a major city in fact of one of the major cities of maharashtra in what's called the marathwada area now but in- interestingly if you if you look at from uh, all of these places from today's vantage point Aurangabad is a city Daulatabad is a fort is a historic is a is a heritage site Khuldabad is a religious site but what it began as is Daulatabad was the city right Khuldabad of course is a religious site that's that's like a satellite center for Daulatabad and Aurangabad is like a later city much later it's it's founded in 1610 you know i'm going to talk to you about that as well so what you, so what you really need to, we need to uh, have in mind is that this is the broad history of the deccan and these five sultanates are created these five sultanates being bijapur and uh, bidar in the in 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 present day karnataka bidar by the way was the later capital of the bahmani sultanate so it's it was it was it was finally the bahmani sultanate was completely destroyed when the last sultanate which is the bidar sultanate formed and to the north of them you have the berar sultanate which is the northernmost sultanate which is uh, where nagpur also was part of you know and to and ahmednagar sultanate which is very very important and uh, when when the five sultanates were created khuldabad was in the ahmednagar sultanate and the last sultanate of course is, is golconda which is basically uh, uh, of, of the same space as the kakatiya uh, kingdom i mean it's, it's go- I, of course to those who have not read or uh, read this or heard about this before this is a very complicated history but that's what you have and this is one la- i'll just say one i'll just remark one last thing that when uh, with the khalji and uh, tughlaq uh, 
sort of interventions into the into the south uh, a major religious shift also occurred and a lot of delhi's sufi culture sufi traditions or sufi silsila you know this uh, chain of sufis shifted also to the deccan and the first where it first landed those pores was khuldabad right because as a satellite town of daulatabad which is a city which is a, which is tughlaq's great capital now and of course over in the later centuries it would further go uh, explored from khuldabad and it would go to many, many other cities including gulbarga in uh, karnataka and i think this is like the very very important very brief history that is required to understand my the place that i am talking about but i think uh, pratik before uh, uh, before we go again dive, dive in can you just give us a flavor of the town a little probably what are the buildings that you have like how how can somebody get there like what is the transportation you know like like a travel sort of you know all these travel advertise travel blogs sure. and stuff have this detail right get in eat something that kind of stuff certainly so yes the travel base is going to be kumbhakonam and uh, <clears throat> it's not very far it's just 5 6 kilometers i guess from the main town i mean from the peripheries of the main town so it's it's not very far from kumbhakonam so what we have are a few temples uh of which the most important temple is the someshwara temple i mean what is called as the someshwara temple today uh which is uh kirappalayarai i mean and there were from the there are other temples also and uh, actually one of those temples uh, uh rai uh, maitrali uh, came to us i mean i i was i'm also a part of Uh, a conservation architecture firm we who work for the tamil nadu government on conservation of temples and in fact we submitted a dossier on one of those palayare temples which belong to the chola times right so uh, for conservation so there are other small temples that are there apart from someshwara so <clears throat> traditionally from the poetries of the tevaram we find vadadali meetrali kirtali tenthali so these temples are there scattered all around other than that it, it, there is also just just uh, a few yards a few meters uh, say 250 meters from the someshwara temple we have another vishnu temple uh, from the pallava times uh, but nothing of the pallavas remains except for one murti uh, which is later pallava uh, so uh, the whole temple has been renovated by the nayakas and it's it's a very uh, well if not for all of this as i said it's a very unremarkable temple so called the nathan kovil it is today called as the nathan kovil or it was <clears throat> called as nandipura vinnagaram so we'll talk more about that because it is vishnu griha which is vinnagaram in tamil of nandi nandi who is uh, nandi varman <clears throat> right so that's that's the base that we have at uh, that's those are the monuments that we have there and it's not very far from kumbakonam as i said <clears throat> other than this there is one uh uh i mean uh, a royal burial place called panjaban ma devi pallippadai uh, which is rajaraja's devi who is buried there so that's one thing that is there and other than that there are also some speculations that there is a village nearby called udayalur there are just speculations that it is rajaraja's burial place but it's just uh, there's not much there is very scanty historical evidence to point to that uh, so uh, historians don't accept it as fact but yes there is a strong folklore and legend that says that is 
that is the burial place so that's that's all that is there i mean it's a very small town as i said uh, and the someshwara temple is the major attraction where you go and the, the gopuram has fallen uh, there is there's just the first two tiers of the i mean the talas of the gopuram that remains and once we enter there is a small mantapa uh, uh, who on whose pedestal we can see beautiful chola later chola sculptures of narasimha and we see some pallava remnants such as a jeshtha uh inside the temple and the temple uh, proper is a very small structure uh whose koshtas have beautiful chola period murtis but otherwise the temple is redone and inside you find the murtis of nayanmar such as mangayar karasi and trinavakarasar about whom we will discuss in the episode so this is what we find today when we go to payarai and uh, yes uh, ravens what do we find at kuldabad if we have to go there Ah, so of course I'll I'll go into the details, you know, when when we are when we are doing the rest of the podcast. I mean, there's there's all the time for that. But uh, quickly, so first I went I went there. Uh, I think last week of December in two thousand eighteen, and it was actually on the on the date on the day of Vaikuntha uh, Ekadashi, uh, which is the holiest day. I as you know as you know. of uh, vaishnavas and uh, so my vaishnava family really urged me to go to a vaishnava temple but here i was in this uh, sort of forgotten so you know somewhat not it's not really forgotten but forgotten uh, city of this very parched tekkan uh, landscape of uh, kuldabad it is an extremely dusty place actually i mean it's i mean uh, it seems like that's uh, that's a general trend in marathwada because even aurangabad it's an extremely dusty place it's very windy and there is it rains so little that there is just dust in your face i mean it's it's that's that's the that's the most vivid uh, sort of uh, tactile uh, olfactory experience in every way you know every sense is just jutted with dustiness and um, we went in a small auto and it's 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 basically a religious site it's where it's lot of people especially in maharashtra even i think even from the, from north and south visit there because there are so many so many dargahs as you will see i mean there is there is something called a chardi mosque which is 1600 people's mosque something like that and there is like so many uh, political figures tombs and religious uh, sites of dargahs and it is just one dargah after another dargah and i think uh, but um of, but of course because it's 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 a it's definitely Uh, a reduced town because besides these dargahs you have very little else there i mean you have probably a few shops some kinds of uh, you have on our outside dargahs you have all of these places which send the sell the paraphernalia right with the you know what not like the tayat or whatever the the incense sticks uh, flowers and all of these things that are that are made as offerings to uh, the peers so you have all of that uh, but besides that it's it's basically people who run the dargahs it's it's like it's a dargah town and um, so when you reach the edge of uh, kuldabad where, and it has a point where you find malik Kam- malikambar's tomb i'll come to that as well um, there is nothing i mean it, it seems like the end, end of the world like it's like the edge of the world that's the feeling you get because there is like because even after that you find small tombs everywhere there is tomb after tomb after tomb these black stone tombs but trees growing out of tombs leaves everywhere and just this completely dried uh, trees everywhere it's 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 a it's an extremely desolate kind of a place but uh, again as you said you know if you know if you go there with the history in your head i mean it just 
I mean, it is it is exceptionally, uh, you know, marvelous. But it is the least splendid place that I'm I, that I know of, and and I think um, and all the tombs, all the structures, that is the current, the ones that are in current uh, activity, they are so I think receptive of the fact that it's so hot here, so it's everything is just painted with white, just sunam everywhere, like just white. So just white building after white building after white building. Uh, with a few shops here and a few mechanic shops, probably a few butcher shops, a few like restaurants, something like not even it's like a rest, few dabas. So that is the feeling that you feel when you go to Kuldaba. Then it's very, it's actually the it is very, very close to Ellora, by the way. It's very close to Ellora. It's like I think, I think around 10 kilometers or something, or even less, probably. And uh, it is right next to Dharutabad. So Aurangabad, Dharutabad, Kuldabad was covered in one day in our trip. So uh, it, it, it obviously go to Aurangabad. Aurangabad is the, is, is the, I think the fourth largest town in Maharashtra, and it's it's right next to Aurangabad. That's the sort of my uh, two pence about the travel travel to Kuldabad. Right, right. So so I guess we should get hmm. started in, into a deep dive with that. I mean, yeah. Uh, so yes, yeah, so let me start with Pariyarai, uh merely because it's Asian, it's it's uh, older than. Khuldabad and uh, it's a senior citizen in that way and it gets preference. So, you know, <clears throat> so, okay. So the first references that we get about this city, uh, town, village, through different chronologies, uh, however you want to call it, uh, is from the poetry of the Tevaram saints or the Moor Mudalis or Upper uh, and uh, Samandar to be specific. So these Shaiva saints, uh, Upper especially, uh, and there's a very interesting story that that's, that unfolds, and we're going to look at that. So, uh, Upper is generally dated to the first half of the 7th century, somewhat contemporary to Mahendra, Mahendra Varman, and <clears throat> Upper, who's also called as Vagisha or Trinavakarasar, sings on this temple of Pariyare, right? So, he's singing some hymns. And it's not just the hymns, but the story and hegeography that is connected to it, right? That that's that's important. And in the songs that he dedicates to these, uh, to these, uh, to this temple, he also mentions a lot of other temples. Like so, the the, the Shaiva tradition, I mean, uh, calls the main shrine to which the decades are dedicated. So the Tamil poetry generally, the Bhakti poetry, generally are are sung in decades. So 10, 10 poems or 11 poems with the Falashruti, if you want to include that, right, uh, are in praise of a single temple. So it's that's some format that is somewhat generally followed, right? So uh, when Pariyare is being sung, he also mentions some other temples, as I said, right? So Vadadali, Merchali, Kirtali, Tentali. The Tali literally means a temple or uh, Katrali means a stone temple. So, Tali is a temple, right? So he mentions all these temples. So these are called Vaiputtalams by the Shaiva tradition. So he sees and he's he's going to talk about these many Shaiva temples there, but then he makes a very interesting remark. Okay, he says, "Vannam kandu naam umai vannangi andri pogen." He says, "Oh Shiva, I'm not going to leave this place. Pogen, andri. If not for, if not for what? Vannangi andri pogen. If not for worshiping you, I'm not going to leave this town." Well. He's singing about these temples. He just has to go in and worship. That's what anyone will think. He says, I should look at your form and worship you. But if not for that, I'm not leaving this town. It's kind of a, a statement of protest that he is making in this early 7th century. right? So why is he doing that? Now, <clears throat> what we get to know from 
the hagiography of the shaiva tradition is something that's very important to this just this phrase that that upper makes okay but this hagiography has been documented later i mean centuries later in the 12th century by sekridar in his periya puranam which gives the narratives of the shaiva saints and the hagiographies that are connected to him but of course it's it's definitely a a, a narrative that is very well part of the tamil tradition and and it's a living narrative that is there and it must have been there for around 300 years when sekridar finally decides to write it down so uh, so there he says i mean i'm quoting sekridar's words so he says cheya sadayar palayare eida adanil selpuludil mayil amanar maraitha vadathali so he calls this temple of vadathali the northern temple as amanar maraitha maraithal is a word that denotes hiding amanar amanar literally translates to those who are nude so here it's a derogatory word used against the jains okay so he says amanar maraitha vadathali the northern temple which was hidden by these nude people right so that is the shramanas or the jains who the the hagiography says that jains have built a matha have converted the whole temple complex with all these temples into a matha into a jina matha and they've covered the linga the shiva linga with a big pot of salts right so uh, uh, so what hagiography tells us is shiva i mean upper is saying this if i don't worship you i'm going to stage a protest i'm not going to eat i'm not going to leave this town you know so he he's he's staging a satyagraha 1500 years before gandhi ji right so and he's saying that uh, this is what i'm going to do and therefore you better give me darshan right he's kind of threatening shiva and hagiography again coming back to 12th century narrative says that you know shiva goes to the king's dream and which king is very important chola king okay that's how the 12th century hagiography documents it okay so he goes to the chola king and says shiva says arivil amanar namai maraippa irundho amanar damai alithu neeki pokku endru so this is a very interesting you know uh, uh, phrase to say <coughs> sorry so shiva says arivu il amanar the amanar the nude people arivu il who are brainless namai maraippa irundhom we remain being hidden by these brainless shramana people who are nude and what you should do he orders the king in the dream saying amanar tamai those jains who are nude alithu destroy them neeki remove them poke you know make them run away or something like that or just just get rid of yendra so that is what shiva told the king so the very narrative with which uh, this the, the references to this town begin in something with something that happened in 7th century is a full on religious conflict between the shaivas and the jains over a temple complex wherein politics is involved to take sides so to say that jains have to be alithu destroyed neeki removed poke to be removed to to get rid of right and of course this again i i have to word as a historian i think we should word, sound a word of caution uh, this is the shaiva narrative that we are speaking about unfortunately we don't have a corroborative jaina narrative to corroborate this with and give a you know 
build up narrative. So we just have this and therefore we are going with that. That's the historiography of this, right? So uh, that's there. And then what did the Chola king do? Kundar Saida Vanjanai Amanar Turu Arutan. So Gundar, again a very derogatory term used on the Jains. Say the Vanjanai, Vanjanai is deceit. So the deceit of the Jains were, you know, corrected by the Shaiva king and upper has darshan and, and leaves, right? So this is a very, very important episode in the Shaiva, Shaiva hagiography. Uh, so to say, like, it's also envisioned as the win uh, or the victory of Shaivism over Jainism uh, through both divine intervention and through political intervention. As we mentioned in the starting, this interplay of politics and religion is, uh, well, it's what we see all through and it's a deadly combo if it's happening today and it is happening today. So that that's, that's for another day. So uh, that's there. So that's the first thing that we get, right? So this is the Shaiva narrative. So we have Shaivas and the Jains in the 7th century, early 7th century, fighting for their place at Pariyar. And Immediately after that, <clears throat> Mahendra is done. And then Nandivarvan comes in early 8th century, just one century later, right? Around one century later. So less than that, in fact. So that's when Tirumangayayavar, one of the Vaishnava saints, come to this city of Parayarai. And he sings 10 songs, uh, dedicates 10 hymns in favor of, uh, uh, of a Vishnu temple here. And... Very interestingly, he calls the temple as Nandipura Vinnagaram. So the Nadanurai Gindranagar, Nandipura Vinnagaram, Nandamaname. So that's how the poem goes. I mean, that's how all the ten poems kind of end. So and he says, Nandipura Vinnagaram, Nandamaname. O heart, may you pray to Nandipura Vinnagaram. So what is Nandipura Vinnagaram? Vinnagaram is Vishnu Griham. Uh, that's how any Vishnu temple is, you know, uh, referred to as. And Nandipuram is the place. So Nandi. Uh, is Nandivarman. Nandipura is the name of the place. Nandipura Vishnugraham, the Vishnu temple that is located at Nandipuram. Right? And how does he refer to the temple as? So yes, he says, Nathanurai Gindranagar Nandipura Vinnagaram, where my lord stays. That's one epithet. There's another epithet that he gives. Nandipani Saidanagar Nandipura Vinnagaram. So Nandipani Saida. Pani Saidal is to perform uh, Kainkarya or to perform service. Right? So Nandi here is uh, Nandi uh, Nandi Varma Pallava the second right so from the 8th century so but it's very interesting again I'm just going to bring in a little bit of religious angle to this so uh, until <clears throat> right from Tirumangai Aivar who says Nandi Pani Saidanagar uh, right from the 13th century to the 19th 20th early 20th century commentators of the Vaishnavas have said have commented on this verse saying there was some king called Nandivarma and he did seva to this temple, right? But very interestingly, in the last hundred years, this narrative have some, has somehow changed. Today, if you go to the temple, they would say that Nandi, who is Shiva's bull vehicle, has come and worshipped this Vishnu and therefore this place is called Nandipura Vishnu Graham. And they'll show, a, they'll show a small deity and say this is Nandi with a human face and all of that. So it's a it's it's interesting to see how how these narratives just get changed in in recent times, right? So that's that's yeah. again for another day. Uh, but yes, yeah. so <clears throat> Trivanga Alvar says that Nandi Varman has has done this. So and it is learned that Nandi Varman had. I mean, it was the southern fort. I mean, whenever we imagine Pallavas, our immediate thought goes to Kanchi or Mamallapuram or anything towards the north. 
end of Tamil Nadu, right? But this one is in middle Tamil Nadu. I mean, the Chola territory, I mean, hardcore Chola territory, right? So it is, Nandi Verman probably had this as the southern fort uh, of the Pallavas when the Pallavas were ruling over the Cholas and Cholas were probably small feudatory kings who were there and from whom Vijayalaya emerges later and, and establishes a, a kingdom, right? So, um, yes. So, um, what? how do we get the early what is the early pallava activity is something we will go into but as of now we are getting a picture the what what emerges out of this one century worth of literature is that yes uh, there are there are jains and shaivas fighting over for dominance here wherein religious and political intervention is happening and there is a vaishnava presence also uh, a very important vaishnava presence where political patronage to the vaishnava shrine is there and um, uh, so Vaishnava, Shaiva, Jain, and the there is political presence physically that is there and donating and patronizing these uh, different uh, cults. So we'll pause here to listen to a bit of Kuldabad and then we'll come back to the political activity here. So yes, over to you, Ray. Ah, yes. Uh, I think my pattern is also going to be very similar in that the religion is a religious aspect. Uh, I mean, it's actually, yeah, never mind. It's like, I think it's the Clearly, they follow each other uh, in in my story because, as, as I told you, it is Tughlaq's uh, appointing Daulatabad or Devagiri in um, in Marathwada, present-day Marathwada region, as the capital in 1327. That that kind of ushers this entire new age of southern or Deccani uh, Sufism. So that's the story that we need to uh, we, that we need to closely follow. So. It is, I mean, the story, I mean, the entire uh, phenomenon of what the relationship between state and the Sufi saint is, is absolutely fascinating, as you will agree. Because, I mean, I know that recently you went to Nizamuddin's Dargah and yes. you, you, I mean, you could count so many uh, nobles and princes, including yes. Shah Jahan's own daughter, uh, uh, Jahanara, who is buried there, right? Yes, so yes. Uh, and yeah, I think I think there are some Mughal kings also Mughal emperors as well. So uh, that is the phenomenon that, that that we find that following also in the Deccan. And it, let's let's start. I mean, even the very uh, let's start with the very vocabulary of Sufism, right? So we have this the word for the sphere of a Sufi saint's influence is vilayat, which comes from the word wali. Wali means governor. So even the vocabulary which Sufis employ, which Islam employs to describe Sufi saints is is that is political that it's the pers- the sufi saint is is uh, does not have uh, temporal power it does not have political power it does not have earthly power but something that's far beyond that and it is grounded in this notion of wahdad ul wujud which is quite contra- which contradicts other some other uh, core tenets of sunni islam in that wahdad uh, or even other general uh, 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 Semitic religions because Wahdad al Wuzud means unity of being, and even today, even uh, then, there's a debate between Christianity or the Catholic Church and rationalists. The first ground rule that the Christ- Catholic will put down is God is that which al- which exists outside the world. The earth and God are two separate beings. They separate it, right? Uh, because God is unaffected by the world. But Wahdad al Wuzud is direct. It's about the unity of being. And that means that there is some kind of a tunnel being dug between God, you know, this um, formless God and the 
I'm the very much formal uh, human being, right? This tunnel is not dug between God and earth, earthly power, which is the king. And that is what that, that's a very central idea that we need to have in we need to keep in my mind. That makes the Sufi saint a wali, a governor, which me and, and the territory, you know, the how far the Sufi saints influence extends as vilayat. In fact, uh, sort of side note, vilayat just means area as well. In, and it later became somehow it came to mean foreign, right? And um, let's say Kalapani is also called vilayati. And if in First World War, if a somebody, if a, for, if a person, foreigner, a man died in a foreign land, it was called Blighty. That comes from Vilayati. Uh, it's very much in this sort of Arabic Pers- Persian uh, vocabulary, Indianized vocabulary. Now, uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's the background of the sort of uh, political meta- metaphysics of, of Sufism. And in fact... This meant that there is there is a kind of contradiction always, a kind of conflict and tension between earthly power and the vilayat of the Sufi saint, and it's it's most famously uh, described in the story of uh, Tughlaq uh, coming to uh, Delhi and uh, uh, the very the great saint Nizamuddin Auliya saying Hunus Delhi durast, meaning Delhi is very far away, meaning the kingdom of Delhi the Throne of Delhi is far away. Delhi belongs to me, in other words, because he's right there. Uh, Nizamuddin Aula is Nizamuddin, right? He's right there. Uh, but Tughlaq is not. So that there is that kind of... That, 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 in that just in that single story, you, you see so much about a conflict between the two. But incidentally, it is the, the migration, uh, the travel of... Uh, uh, Muhammad bin Tughlaq, the shifting of capital that, that entirely ushers this entire age of Deccani Sufism. And the, there are four major Indian kind of Sufi schools, the Chishtiya, the Suhravardi, Khadiriya, and Naqshbandi. And the Chishtiya is the most well-known that all of us know about, thanks to A.R. Rahman as well. <laughs> uh, so you have the, 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 the line of five very, very important Chishti saints, Moinuddin, Kutubuddin, Fariduddin, Nizamuddin, Naziruddin. Moinuddin Chistia, uh, Chisti is in uh, Ajmer. Kutubuddin Bakhtiar Kaki is in, uh, in, is in Delhi itself. Fariduddin is Ganjashakar. He is not in Delhi. But Nizamuddin again is in Delhi. Nizamuddin Dargad, a very well-known well Hazrat Nizamuddin. That's also known for his railway station to all Indians, I guess. Nasiruddin Chiragi Dehalavi is also in Delhi. So these, uh, these three saints uh, in the, five, the line of five great uh, Chisti, Chisti Sufi saints are in Delhi. Uh, so you can say that much of Indian Sufism is a, some kind of a, uh, is, is a sporadic kind of uh, extension of De- De- Delhi uh, uh, Sufism, Delhi's brand of Chishtia Sufism. And from uh, Nizamuddin's, uh, and, and th- this kind of line, the notion of the line is very, very important uh, to Sufism. And that's what keeps that 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 that, that basically creates the uh, glue that that puts entire histories of these places together. In fact, Kuldabad. I mean, if you without the notion of the teacher and the student, the teacher and the student line, which which we've also called Guru Parampara in our in in the in the India Indic traditions, is what kind of puts the entire Kuldabad history together. That that's that's the kind of skeleton that makes Kuldabad because the kings come and go. There are two kings here. There are some nobles there. But what's putting the entire place together, what makes Kuldabad Kuldabad is this peer-murid uh, relationship, the, the line, the, the, uh, the concept of 
Sufi saints succeeding other Sufi saints. Now, it is the the story goes that Nizamuddin's uh, student uh, when 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 uh, Tughlaq tra- transferred his capital, Nizamuddin ordered his student uh, Muntajabuddin uh, to first travel southward towards Daulatabad and then uh, to Kuldabad to establish Chistia Sufism over there. And Muntajibuddin uh, is buried right now in Kuldabad. And that is the this kind of starting point of uh, the unbroken line of Sufi saints. But before that as well, you have the Chahardi Sayyid Sad Auliya uh, Masjid, which is uh, a masjid that, that, that uh, celebrates the, the migration of 1400 uh, Muslim saints and they are all said to be buried in that area but all you have today is basically a masjid that's that's let's say the starting that's the basic foundation but Muntajibuddin onwards this it, it just, it, it, just acts, it's, it is accelerated this entire process of Sufi transfer to uh, Kuldabad Muntajibuddin and he uh, and he is buried in what's called uh, he's called Zarzari Zarzari Zarbaksh uh, Zarzari Zarbaksh and his darga is the most important darga that, that is there today in Kuldabad. And Zarzari Zarbaksh means, Zarzari means gold. And he is tied uh, to this, uh, this this story that has to do with gold. And he is said to be the giver of fortune. And that is a very, again, a very, very important, uh, uh, very, very uh, important Oh, sorry, oh, I got stuck somewhere. Sorry. Yeah, it's it's a very important concept again in Sufism because poverty. There is an embrace of poverty. There is there is a humility that's associated with Sufism, right? And that is also one of the reasons I guess that uh, princes often prefer to be buried there because they want to embrace what they actually do not have in their own temporal lives, right? Uh, and in fact, that 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 is that is in the very name of uh, Moinuddin Chishti. He's called uh, Garib Nawaz. That is the protector of the poor, right? So, Muntaji Buddin is something like that. So, once apparently, uh, Muntaji Buddin had settled there and there was almost no one there at the time because he was one of the first saints to come and settle there. And at that time, he was requesting uh, his followers to go find money to maintain this Kankha, this entire establishment of his Sufi camp. Uh, and then there was this Hindu woman, a princess, who said that if you can, I will pay, I will, uh, I will, I'm going to shun you for now. But if your saint is so great, ask him to somehow get, uh, ask somehow to get gold to materialize in a well. Then I will give you money, right? Uh, the, and then somehow the student returns and he says, "Okay, let that be." And somewhere in the in Kuldabad, a well of water turned into gold. And then Sonabai, I mean, obviously her name, she's named because she gave gold to the uh, darga. She gives, she, she starts donating. Uh, gold to uh, and to the darga, and that is how uh, uh, Buddha's fame is said to have spread. But Buddhin sadly passed away very very soon, and then you have the coming of his brother, the superstar, in fact, you can say of uh, South Indian Sufism, Burhanuddin Garib, and it is Gesu and Burhanuddin Garib is so important because he basically dragged entire that entire Deccan. Entire uh, North Indian establishment out to Deccan, because it is not. Uh, in fact, the coming of the language of Dakini 
is said to have happened because of Burhanuddin Gari because it is the movement of Burhanuddin Gari that, that, that brought in so many saints, so many farmers, so many different people of different occupations into the Deccan. They basically followed Burhanuddin Gari's coming and, and that is how you have this whole uh, one of one is a religious sort of demographic demographic shift. But on, 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 the, on, the, on, on the other hand, the oft-forgotten uh, linguistic demographic shift as well. Uh, and very soon, Burhanuddin's Garib son, uh, student, Gesu Daraz, uh, who would first actually settle in Dauratabad, would later go to Gulbarga and start his own Dargaur. I mean, he would be buried there and he would completely influence. He would be a very important player, in fact, in even uh, Bahani, Bahmani Sultanate's politics. Uh, and you can, as you can imagine, by the time Burhanuddin Garib's uh, times come to an end, Tughlaq is no longer here. And, and soon after, Bahmani Sultanate's uh, Sultanate is uh, established and it, it becomes a peripheral area in that territory. But Kuldabad remains to be important because of the religious uh, connection. Now, um, yeah, so Burhanuddin Garib moves in and he is known basically similarly as just as Muntajibuddin is known as the giver of gold, Burhanuddin is known as the giver of giver of silver. And Burhanuddin Garib's uh, 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 tomb is very much today in the Sheikh Nizamuddin tomb model, and that is that just shows how such how important he is. He was as uh, as a as as a as a uh, student of uh, Nizamuddin as well. And as I said, you know the numbers are are what are very interesting. He said to have bring seven hundred disciples down to. Uh, the, down to Dautabad, down to Kuldabad. And soon, Burhanuddin Garib is also uh, buried in Kuldabad. And right across the street, you have Zainuddin Garib's uh, tomb. And Zainuddin is the student of Burhanuddin. So now you see what, have, what has happened, right? Muntajibuddin, Burhanuddin, both are students of Nizamuddin. That means it is still, there is no Silsila yet and in Deccan. It is, it is still North Indian based. These are just like uh, branches, let's say. But now it's no longer a branch because Burhanuddin himself has a disciple and that's Zainuddin. And now from here on you have a, a different a, a Khuldabad line, a Deccan line of uh, Chishtia saints. Zainuddin uh, Garib. And Zainuddin Garib's tomb is also critically important because it is said uh, to have the robe of honor, uh, uh, the, the robe that Prophet Muhammad wore. And the Kuldabad tombs are particularly important also because they, 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 they tell us about the anomalies that exist in the linguist sort of gender politics of uh, Muslim shrines. Because here, not only are women allowed into the shrines just as, as, equal, uh, as equals to men, but they're also buried in the, in the tomb itself. I mean, Maulana Kwan, Maulana Kwan Bibi, one of the disciples of Zainuddin, she's such an important disciple that she's called Maulana, which is uh, a... Other, other term that is often referred to priests, right? preferred, I mean, uh, oh, oh, sort of defended for priests. And so she has that uh, title and she and many women like her are buried in the complex of Zainuddin. But these three are important figures as, as religious figures. But as you will see, they, as, as often happens with Dargas, they, they come to uh, invite more tombs. So it be, each of these becomes a complex of their own soon on, soon on, soon after. Uh, so that is, let's say, the uh, kind of basic outline of Sufism and uh, Sufism in Deccan and Kuldabad. But what you need to remember is that you have these, uh, they have this very, very important Chishtia line, um, which is, 
whose central tenet is wahdatul wujud unity of being uh, and and that nizamuddin's from nizamuddin's line you have three saints zarzari baksh zarzari zarbaksh mutajibuddin burhanuddin garib and zainuddin yep now you go ahead pratik thank you that was a very very interesting uh, line of thought i mean just then i've returned from hazrat nizamuddin with very very wonderful experiences from there <clears throat> wonderful songs and wonderful qawalis to hear and yes thank you for all of that <clears throat> so so going back in time and traveling south right <clears throat> we saw that nandi varman is here so uh, we learn that nandi varman uh, in the 8th century has a fort here and how do we know that it's through uh, a copper plate called udayendram copper plate of the pallavas i mean there are there are one there's another udayendram copper plate that is issued with the cholas now this one is the pallava udayendram copper plate uh, wherein there is a mention of uh, the pandyas who are coming and trying to capture or lay a siege to the fort of the pallavas and it does not happen at kanchipuram or mamallapuram or wherever in northern tamil nadu it happens at nandipuram and the copper plate says pallavamallam nandipure drishtva so having seen the pallavamalla or the warrior of pallavas at nandipuram right but recent scholarship is kind of divided now with uh, dr bala subramanian kind of saying it's not the nandipuram that's in palayare this is perhaps another nandipuram but earlier scholarships and some other scholars today still believe that it is this nandipuram that is there in palayare but i mean anything is not very far off that so that that's that, that's something that we need to note about that's just something that i wanted to make a mention because that's recent scholarship that's saying that so having said that so pandyas attempted laying of siege at the fort of pallavas at nandipuram Uh, it was thwarted by the senapati or this military general called udayachandra and it is in his name that this copper grant copper plate grant is being made and in the 21st regnal year of nandi varma uh, there is a capture or a siege that is being spoken about called and very interestingly as a side note the pandyas are being referred to as dramila raja as if these people are not ruling the dramila land dravida land they are referring because they are even further south they are being referred to as dramila raja so anyways so the pandyas come and uh, lay siege to uh, this uh, uh, town of nandipuram and also very interestingly not only from the epigraphic material from the copper plate uh, if we see the um, seminal work of dr c meenakshi's Uh, in 1930s on the sculptures of vaikuntha vaikuntha permal temple in kanchi she identifies one of these sculptures to be the pandian siege of nandipura fort and uh, udayachandra the senapati coming and uh, saving the pallava crown right so on the horse and that's that's a very interesting sculpture and it it is it falls in line with the chronological order with which these uh, pallava stories are depicted at the vaikuntha permal temple or parameshwara vishnu griham at kanchipuram and that, that, that that's an identification that dr c meenakshi makes and that's again another f- testament to what we see uh, from the copper plate right so uh, uh, yeah so that that's that's one thing so that, so there is an andipuram where the pallavas hold their fort 
and that is that is kind of trying to be captured i mean attempts at sieges at capture are being made by the pandyas uh, in 8th century and it's being thwarted by pallava senapatis and all of that right and what about the cholas i mean uh, it's all pallava now but the thing is uh the cholas must have been feudatories to the pallavas at this time uh because in the hagiography of upper that we just saw with regard to the jains and all of that uh we see that uh there is another woman called mangayer karasi who is also one among the very few women nayanmars of the shaiva pantheon uh shaiva saints and she is being referred to as balavar kon pavai pavai woman kon king balavar cholas so balavar kon pavai the woman of the cholas so uh, and also the the king as i said who comes and intervenes in this this jain shaiva fight as we saw in the 7th century he is again referred to as a chola king so there is historically we know that this place belonged to the pallavas but hagiography says it was the chola king who intervened so how do we kind of reconcile i think an attempt of reconciliation can be made by saying that well it is under the pallava dominion i mean uh, but it's the cholas who are perhaps feudatories to the pallavas or something like that right so that's a that's a logical conclusion that we can draw because otherwise cholas don't have a presence at this point of time sangam cholas are there and then comes vijayalaya so in between it's, it is the pallavas perhaps they were feudatory so be that as it may so we get this idea of pallavas having nandipura and palayarai area <coughs> with them and the cholas being perhaps feudatories to them and the pandyas coming and trying to lay siege in the fort and it's basically p versus p pallava versus pandya and cholas are there somewhere right so that's there and then comes uh, a century later early 9th century we have third nandivarman uh, which again when we look at there is a poetry literature on him court literature called nandikalambakam so it's a literature that describes him and and things like that uh, uh, how i mean his life and and valor and all of that usual eulogia on kings you know things like that so that says a very interesting phrase from that goes palayaru venran kadayaru pondar kalandu so that's that's something i found very interesting i mean uh, <clears throat> earlier historians quote this phrase and say see nandivarman is also associated with palayaru but i think there is more to this verse <clears throat> because it says palayaru venran he who won over palayaru so if we are to say well palayaru is with the pallavas pandyas came and tried to lay siege but then was won over and then a century later again when you refer to nandivarman the third the poetry says palayaru venran he who won over palayaru well why should he win over if it's his right so perhaps <clears throat> sorry so perhaps there was some kind of you know um, temporal temporary loss of the city as a privilege so we, but we we'll never know because there's no other evidence to point that but what's very interesting is uh, early chola inscriptions from all around the place right so uh, uh, like kumbhakonam the major shiva temple in kumbhakonam of course today it is the kumbeshwara but the earlier major temple of uh, kumbhakonam is the nageshwaran temple what is called as nageshwaran temple today and uh, early chola inscriptions parantaka one period inscriptions பாம்பூர் நாட்டு தேவதானம் திரு குடமூக்கு மகாதேவருக்கு நந்திபுரத்து வியாபாரி சாமுண்டன் மூர்த்தி ஸோ தெர் இஸ் அ மென்ஷன் ஆஃப் அ வியாபாரி ஆர் அ மர்ச்சன்ட் கால்டு சாமுண்டா மூர்த்தி பட் 
I mean, his name is not important, but it says a Vyapari from Nandipuram. Right? And then some other temples, there is another temple called Kodi, Trikodika that is nearby. And there also we find an inscription that says Parayatra Nandipurat Vyapari Kumaran Ganavati. So uh, Parayatra uh, of Parayarai Nandipurat of Nandipuram, which belongs to Parayarai, Vyapari, a merchant. Kumaran Ganapati. So that's his name. So like this, this is just a sample, but we have so many other temple inscriptions, early temple inscriptions around <clears throat> Parayarai that speak about large amounts of donations. I mean, in, in noteworthy important donations that are being made by merchants from Parayarai and Nandipuram. So that's that's specifically recorded. Merchant Vyapari from Parayarai, Parayarai, Nandipuram, Parayarai. So what we get, I mean, the sense that we can build out of that is there are so many merchants living at Parayarai who are very wealthy enough to go to these nearby towns and villages and to donate in large quantities to these temples. Now, that kind of tells us about the prosperity of town both in terms of economic and religious activities, right? So that's something that's very interesting, I guess, that we need to take notice of when we speak of Parayarai at this time period through the inscriptions of other places that point to these merchants of uh, Parayarai. And I think that that's, that, that's important. So, um, yeah, and as you said that it's that, uh, you know, Kuldabad is a very is a burial town. I mean, if I can use that word, uh, of course, it's more than that. But it's also interesting that, as I mentioned, uh, Parayarai is also a town of burials of the Chola royals. Uh, now that we've entered into Chola period, so we see that uh, uh, Panjaban Mahadevi, one of the uh, one of the uh, queens of the famed Rajaraja, is buried here. I mean, they are Shaiva Dikshita. So once they are cremated, their uh, their their remains are collected and they are buried with a Shivalinga. So that's the procedure. So uh, and these temples in Tamil they are called as Pallipadai Koil, uh, or in Sanskrit in the inscriptions they are referred to as Atita Griha. So Atita Griha or Pallipadai Koil in Tamil. And we see that Panchavan Mahadevi Pallipadai. Panchavan literally refers to five people, as you can guess, it's a Sanskrit word. So, Panchaban, uh, which is Pandyas because they ruled uh, by splitting their land into five. So, Panchavan Mahadevi is a woman of the Pandyas, uh, Devi of the Pandyas, or a uh, princess of the Pandyas who was married by Rajaraja. So, Panchavan Mahadevi Pallipadai, the, the burial place, a resting place of, of one of the queens of Rajaraja, was built by Rajendra. <clears throat> and... Again, another interesting nuance that comes up in this is that uh, the inscription that refers to this burial temple uh, speaks about how the affairs of this of this temple, which is very unique in that sense, right? It's not a Shiva temple per se, but it's a burial temple. And how the affairs, who manages the affairs? And that's very interesting where it says an assistant called Venkadan is there. Venkadan literally means... Um, you know, a white forest, or perhaps it refers to the uh, cremation ground or something like that. Or Shvetaranya, there is there is a temple, there is a temple town called Shvetaranya by itself. Perhaps he belonged to that town. Now that be that as it may, but he is the assistant to someone else. Who is the other person? <clears throat> the other person who is the main person who manages the temple is referred to as Lakulishwara Pandita, right? So that opens up another layer of religious dimension to this where Lakulisha Pashupata 
was very very famous and was was the <clears throat> chola official religion uh, during those times and lakulisha people lakulisha uh, panditas are managing the affairs and conducting the rituals of the burial place at padayare of the royal uh, uh, members of the royal family and i think that's that's very very uh, interesting another layer of shaivism and religious and political history that this uh, opens us up to right so i think that's another connection that i would like to draw with kuldabad i mean it's the burial place of royals and i mean burial place of um, of uh, kings who followed islam is not very fascinating but to consider burial place of uh, shaiva kings i mean that that that's something that's interesting and that too uh, yeah. managed so by i have a, I, by, I have a question yeah. there uh, yeah. so what is the uh, meta, what is the uh, metaphysics what you know because consider these people are followers of let's say brands of hindu shaivism because you say it's managed by pashupatas but uh, pallava kings may, may have may have subscribed to some other form of shaivism also you know in their own lifetime so right. what is the metaphysics that allows burial of hindu kings to happen because that's that's definitely a rarity i swear as yeah. i know and definitely for this period yeah yeah agreed so i think uh, these one thing that we need to notice i mean we don't know about the exclusive i mean we don't know much about the pallava royal religion per se because that's that's a different case but cholas when we speak about cholas we do know that they were uh, pashupata dikshitas i mean they had their diksha done uh, from and they had a diksha nama also if you see uh, shivapada shekara harapada shekara etc are names of rajaraja and rajendra respectively right so uh, and their gurus were some of these pashupata gurus were brought in from bengal uh, uh, and uh, and brought here uh, with the shaiva knowledge and they were they were shaiva dikshitas themselves they were initiated shaiva practitioners Uh, not just shiva or devotees of shiva who patronize shiva temples no and therefore it is uh, it is the practice of shaivism of that branch of shaivism to treat such dikshas as uh, dikshitas as you know as as how the other traditions treat renunciates who are generally buried and not just cremated right but here because they were grihasthas they are cremated their uh, remains are picked up and then buried and the memorial constructed with a shivalinga there so i think it is a practice of the pashupata faith that allows them to do this but of course i will i am not too sure i will have to get into the primary sources of this and get back on that and and no wonder then in the, the popularity of pashupata religion especially in the in southern india or yeah south of the, south of india definitely uh, in this period because almost we find pashupata influence upon all major temple areas of this very of the, true and also full towns dedicated in the name of kaya varohana right kachikkaronam mm-hmm. nagaikkaronam kodandikkaronam so we have kumbakonam there is a kaya varohana in kanchi there is a kaya varohana in, uh, in yeah. nagapattanam yeah. there is a kaya varohana i mean the pashupata influence is everywhere but that's i think that might derail our whole uh, this thing so we'll get back sure. so yes sure. over to you 